If you would take your Bibles, please, and we'll return to Luke chapter 22 this morning as we continue to make our way through the gospel according to Luke. We'll be looking this morning at verses 47 through 53 as we have just left Jesus in the garden suffering through that evening prior to his crucifixion. And now, of course, we come to the fulfillment of that which Jesus has already predicted that he would be betrayed. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Father, may Your words accomplish their purpose in us today. For Christ's sake, amen. The English poet Robert Herrick must have been something of a romantic. He asks in one of his poems, what is a kiss? And the answer he gave was, the sure, sweet, cement, glue, and lime of love. To kiss is to love, except, that is, when a kiss is to betray. And, of course, that's what we're finding here this morning. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? This is one of three scenes that we're going to find in our passage this morning. It's all describing a singular event. Jesus is being arrested. He's going to be taken away to trial and then crucifixion, but within this one event, Luke focuses on three different aspects. And the first, of course, that we see here is his betrayal. Judas comes along and betrays Jesus with a kiss. He gives this greeting, which is typically a sign of love and great affection, but for Judas, he turns it into something which has a 
an evil and wicked purpose. This was the prearranged signal to identify Jesus as the man who is to be taken into custody by the temple police. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 48, Judas tells the officials that the one I will kiss is the man. Judas himself then came up with this sign, this signal. When Judas kissed the man, he was betraying him unto death. To understand what a bitter betrayal this was, we have to know how much Jesus had done for Judas. Judas has been with Jesus for three years. Luke reminds us of this when he identifies Judas as one of the twelve. There in verse 47. This is what makes his treachery so utterly despicable. Judas was one of the twelve disciples, that inner circle of Jesus' closest Friends, Jesus had called Judas to be among his disciples in the, as out of the larger group he chose Judas to be one of the twelve. He did this, if you remember back to Luke chapter 6, after spending an entire night in prayer to his father. It is out of that night of prayer that Jesus then chose twelve. Judas was named a disciple by the definite will of God and the deliberate choice of Jesus. Well, Jesus also taught Judas, didn't he? Judas would have been present for almost all of the teaching that Jesus does throughout the Gospel of Luke. And of course, much more that Luke doesn't record. He was there when Jesus said that God's blessing is for the poor, not for people who want to get rich. Back in Luke chapter 6. He was there when Jesus said that his disciples should love their enemies and bear good fruit flowing from a good heart. Also, chapter 6. When Jesus told his parables, he did not explain them to everyone. But he did explain them to Judas and the other disciples saying in Luke 8, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. Remember, Jesus explained that he spoke in parables, not so that everything would be made clear, but so that things would not be understood by the vast majority of his hearers. He had to come later and explain them to the disciples. And there was Judas among the rest of the twelve getting a tutorial from Jesus over and over and over. Judas heard the parables Jesus taught, which warned people against greed. He heard the advice that Jesus gave about counting the cost of discipleship. And in those three years that, Jesus, that Judas was with Jesus, he also saw the power of Jesus' miracles, including miracles that directly benefited Judas. We have to assume that Judas was there on the boat when the storm came up and everyone thought they were going to die and then Jesus calms the storm. Judas was there. 
certainly was there when Jesus fed the 5,000. And every, every disciple gathers a, a, a basket full of leftovers. Perhaps that was a gift to the disciples. <laughs> Sometimes we'll have a congregational luncheon and I'll go home with yeah, a basket full of things. One of the fringe benefits of being the pastor, I guess. I don't know. Judas saw the mighty work of God. Judas saw Jesus providing for the daily needs of the disciples. And he was the recipient. Jesus gave Judas the opportunity to serve. Not only was Judas trusted to serve as the treasurer of the common purse... But he also went out with the other disciples, preaching the gospel and healing in various villages. You'll remember Luke chapter 9. The others, like the others, Judas was divinely empowered to preach the gospel, to heal diseases, to cast out demons. At least he was there with the other disciples if he wasn't actually doing it himself. During all of this time, Jesus was showing Judas again and again that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. Judas was there when Peter spoke on behalf of the rest of the disciples and proclaimed the identity of Jesus Christ as the son of the living God. Jesus was giving him the gospel Throughout all of this time, repeatedly proclaiming his suffering and his coming death and his coming resurrection, he even warned Judas specifically not to go astray. Like the rest of the disciples, Judas was taught to pray that he not be led into temptation, but rather delivered from evil. He must have been there when Judas said, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Presumably, Judas was also there when Jesus told the parable of the wicked tenants, which ended with the landowner putting his enemies to death for killing his only son. Jesus gave Judas every possible warning not to become the betrayer. He even washed Judas's dirty feet. According to John, this night that we're focusing on here in Luke chapter 22 began with Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. There was one disciple who refused, and it wasn't Judas. It was Peter. Then after Jesus lovingly bathes his betrayer's feet, he shares fellowship with him at the table. And before Judas slips out into the darkness, Jesus gave him one final warning Behold, the hand of the man who betrays me is with mine on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is 
is betrayed. Even the last words Jesus ever spoke to his betrayer were spoken in love. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus doesn't get angry. Jesus doesn't scream at him. What are you doing? How can you do this to me? He speaks softly and gently. He calls Judas by his personal name. Matthew tells us that he even referred to Judas as his friend. And it was as a friend that Jesus calls him one last time to repentance. Jesus did more for Judas than any of us have ever done for anyone. If to kiss is to love, then Jesus had been kissing Judas all the way through the gospel. This was the man who betrayed him, not one of his usual enemies, Not a scribe, not a Pharisee, not one of the elders of the people, not not a Roman, but someone who had been welcomed as his close friend. The Son of Man was betrayed by someone that he loved. In fact, the very manner of the betrayal presumes upon Jesus' affection. Judas knew where to find Jesus only because he was one of Jesus' friends one of the disciples. The garden was a secluded spot where Jesus loved to go with his disciples as he had done that night. And as we mentioned last week, this was not a one-time thing. He had done this before. It was a regular occurrence. Judas knew it well because he had been there with Jesus so often. It was his very friendship that enabled him to arrange this arrest. The same close friendship gave him access to greet Jesus with a kiss. Remember what has just happened. Jesus has just celebrated the Passover with his disciples. He mentioned during that meal that he would be betrayed. And that the betrayer was one of those around the table. And as we noted when we looked at that passage, it was not obvious who it was. The other 11 did not immediately turn to look at Judas. They asked, is it me? Am I the betrayer? So now here we are in the garden and Judas comes. The other disciples don't jump out in front of Jesus to protect him from Judas. Judas just strolls right up to the Lord and kisses him. The scripture is then fulfilled. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41.9. 
Psalm 55, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, but it is you, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. This is part of the messianic prophecy, which is opened up for us in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Christ. Jesus suffered this betrayal for us on his way to the cross. In a way, his sufferings would not have been complete without this betrayal. How could Jesus sympathize with us in all of our sufferings unless he himself had experienced the Judas kiss of personal betrayal? That's a common experience for men and women. And Jesus, we're told, is our sympathetic high high priest who understands everything that we are going through because he has experienced it himself. When you feel betrayed, when you are betrayed, tell it to Jesus because he knows. He understands better than anyone else. Now that raises a question for us, doesn't it? What is the best way for us to respond when we are betrayed? Usually what we want is some sort of revenge. (laughs) In the flesh, we immediately start to plot. There's something deeply satisfying to the flesh about seeing people get what they deserve. Some of the great stories in world literature are based on this motif of betrayal and revenge. Consider just as an example the Count of Monte Cristo, famous novel by Alexandre Dumas in which young Edmond Dantes is betrayed by three jealous friends and sent to prison. And after making his escape and finding his fortune, he systematically takes revenge on each of those enemies driving them into financial ruin, public disgrace, even suicide and insanity. There's something about a story like that that appeals to our fallen nature. Good for him. It satisfies this natural craving for revenge. But brothers and sisters, we are not to be natural people. Revenge may be what the disciples wanted when they saw Jesus betrayed. They had been with Jesus in the garden, so they must have been startled when they saw this mob coming to make the arrest. Just look at verses 49 through 51. When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop! No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now this is the second scene in what we're seeing here in this passage in in the arrest of Jesus. We know from the discussion Jesus had with his disciples earlier in the evening that they were carrying two swords. Not surprisingly, Peter is the hasty apostle. (laughs) somebody asks Lord shall we strike with the sword Peter doesn't even wait for an answer 
Perhaps he knew he wouldn't get the answer he wanted. And so we know from the Gospel of John that this was Peter. And he takes that sword, one of those swords, and of course Peter is one who is carrying a sword. That might not have been a good call, giving Peter's impulsiveness. But he strikes a blow. And he takes off the ear of this servant, this slave. As one writer notes, with poor aim, but stout intention. Which should not surprise us. Peter, after all, is a fisherman, not a soldier. He's probably not very gifted at sword play. In any case, when Jesus was betrayed, the disciples inclination, their impulse was to fight back. I'm not sure what Peter really was expecting. Why does he go after a slave? What's that going to accomplish? Did he think that after he took out the slave, he was going to be able to uh, take out the temple guard and, and the Roman cohort that was with them? We see this so often in regard to Peter, don't we? He doesn't think things through very well. Acts first, thinks later. Most of the time he acts first and then he doesn't think until he's rebuked by the Lord. There's a lesson there for all of us. If we are the kind of person who is led along by our emotion, we're headed for trouble. It's not that emotion is wrong, but it ought not control us. Our mind, being transformed and renewed by the word of God, is what ought to control us. Peter hasn't learned that yet. There is a time and a place for the proper use of a sword. This isn't it. In the case of an unprovoked attack by an unlawful aggressor, we have a legitimate right to self-defense. The sword also has a divinely approved authority in the hands of the state, including its lawful use by a legitimate army in the prosecution of a just war. But none of that comes into play here. This was neither a time nor a place for the disciple to engage in sword play. To begin with, it was unlawful. However misguided they were, the people who came to arrest Jesus had legal authority under God. And so any armed resistance would make the disciples guilty of resisting arrest. Now you add to that the fact that Fighting back was also unnecessary. You just build this case for why what Peter did was foolish. Jesus was the last person who needed anyone to defend him. If he needed help, all he had to do was to call on 10,000 of the Lord's angels. And he chose not to. Because Jesus knew what was going on and Peter didn't. 
Jesus knew this is all part of the plan. That plan which is eventually going to get him to the cross. Well, resisting was not only unnecessary, it was also unwise. As we mentioned, the disciples were outmanned. Any resistance would have been futile. But it also would have given the religious leaders exactly the excuse that they've been looking for. They were about to spend all night desperately trying to find some legal basis for a charge against Jesus. And to the end, they would not be able to find one. They would have to make them up. If his disciples, however, fought with their swords, then the enemies of Jesus would be able to justify their own use of violence. They could claim that Jesus was leading a violent uprising, that his followers were armed and dangerous, and therefore his forcible arrest was in the interest of public safety. What Peter was doing was handing the Jewish authorities their case on a silver platter. But the biggest problem with resisting this arrest is that it would have undone God's plan of salvation. Now, of course, that was never going to happen. God doesn't get thwarted. But from a human perspective, it was the will of God for Jesus to be betrayed, arrested, tried, convicted, and crucified. And although these things are evil in themselves, they were the pathway Jesus needed to walk for our redemption. Rather than resisting arrest, he was called to submit to the force of these ungodly men, even to death. And therefore, to strike a blow in his defense is an action which, however well-meant, is directed entirely against the purposes which God is now accomplishing. Good intentions, when not married to a biblical understanding, can put us in the wrong place. And that's what's happened here. You know, as we say, God's plans are not going to be thwarted, but nonetheless, if you're Peter, you don't want to be on the side opposing what God is doing. But that's where he found himself because he didn't understand and because he didn't listen to what Jesus had been telling him for so long and because he acted according to his emotion, impulsively. All of this helps to explain why Jesus said, no more of this, and then proceeded to reattach the servant's ear. At the very moment of his arrest, writes Kent Hughes, with blood on the ground and steel in the air, Jesus reached out to one of his enemies and healed him. And as simple as it is, this miracle is far more important than many people realize. It was important because it protected Jesus from the accusation that he was running some sort of terrorist organization. Which is surely what, have, what would have happened. 
It was a sign instead that Jesus never harms anyone. The miracle was important because it showed how utterly opposed Jesus is to illegitimate, wrongful violence. And it also ended any attempt to hinder the progress toward the cross. And that, brothers and sisters, that's the important thing. That's where all of this is going. That's what God is doing in the world that night. He is moving Jesus to the cross. And when Jesus performed this miracle, he is showing his purpose to bring salvation and his willingness to suffer injustice for the glory of God. He doesn't need Peter's sword. At a practical level, the healing of the slave's ear also shows how we should respond when we are mistreated, when we are even betrayed. We should not seek retaliation and revenge like the disciples did. Instead, we are to follow the example of Jesus in blessing our enemies. Jesus taught that verbally, and he teaches it here by his actions. Brothers and sisters, this is so important. We need to hear this, don't we? Because the world around us has taken sides. Everybody is on one side or another. And everybody hates everybody else. If you're not on my side, you're my enemy. And I'm going to do everything that I can to deal with you as an enemy. It's got to be different for us. We need to understand what we see going on in the world in the light of the gospel. In the light of what Christ has done. When we were his enemies, and yet he died for us. We've just come through this election day. Boy, we can't get a clearer picture of this, can we? Are you red or are you blue? If you're the one that opposes me, I don't want anything to do with you. And I'm going to call you all kinds of evil things. That is not how the people of God are to behave. We are not red and we are not blue. We are Christians. We belong to Jesus. We are to be in this, in this world as light and salt. And so we don't hate even if someone is presenting themselves as opposed to us because we are Christians, opposed to the gospel, opposed to the truth of the word of God. Jesus called Judas his friend. This, this is part of what it means to have a renewed mind. We don't think like the world. And we don't let the world impact the way we think. Our minds are controlled by the word of God. This is so important. Whenever the church has taken up the power of the earthly sword, 
the results have always been disastrous. J.C. Ryle wisely explained this when he said, the sword has a lawful office of its own. It may be used righteously in the defense of nations against oppression. It may become positively necessary to use it to prevent confusion, plunder upon the earth. But the sword is not to be used in the propagation and maintenance of the gospel. Christianity is not to be enforced by bloodshed and belief in it extorted by force. Happy would it have been for the church if this sentence had been more frequently remembered. There are few countries in Christendom where the mistake has not been made of attempting to change men's religious opinions by compulsion, penalties, imprisonment, and death. And with what effect? The pages of history supply an answer. No wars have been so bloody as those which have arisen out of the collision of religious opinion. Often, mournfully often, the very men who have been most forward to promote those wars have themselves been slain. Whatever attack we are under, we must never forget that our real warfare is spiritual warfare. And our only weapons are spiritual weapons. Prayer and the preaching of the gospel. If only the disciples had prayed the way Jesus taught them to pray, they would have been ready for this. But because they did not fight against principalities and powers of darkness through prayer, they end up resorting to the use of worthless weapons. We can also follow the example of Jesus when we suffer our own personal betrayals. How easy it is for us to send our version of a sword whistling through the air. Not even waiting to hear Jesus to tell us not to strike. When we're angry about something, usually our first impulse is to get even. And Jesus wants to set us straight. Stop. No more of this, no more vengeful thoughts, no more angry words, no more manipulation, no more retaliation, no more getting even. Rather forgive, rather love, rather heal. Instead of following the example of Jesus, Peter takes that sword his first impulse, his first inclination. Our first impulse, our first inclination ought to be to bless our enemies and not curse them. Pray for them. Look for ways to serve them. Commit your cause to the Lord and wait for him to vindicate you when the time is right. Submit and surrender to God's will even in your suffering then people will be able to see what Jesus is like from the way that you treat your enemies. Of course, this is impossible to do apart from the grace of God. Impossible. But we have a Savior who is able to help us. We have a Savior who is able to cause us to stand when the assault comes. When hatred is poured upon us when we are libeled and slandered. 
We have a Savior who himself was bitterly betrayed and who paid the price for all of our betrayals and who now lives to save us through our sufferings. It's not just from our sufferings that God saves us, of course, but through our suffering. As scripture teaches, experience confirms, it's not always God's will to bring us immediate deliverance. By the power of his grace, God promises that one day our sufferings will be over. But in the meantime, we are often oppressed by the powers of darkness. Nowhere is this more clearly demonstrated than the sufferings that Jesus endured on the night of his betrayal. Verse 52 tells us that then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. When Jesus speaks of the power of darkness, he's referring to Satan. And he's referring to the dark forces of evil. But he is also careful to put those powers in their place. Jesus notes how ironic it was for them to arrest him at all. When we talk about irony... We're talking about an expression in which the opposite of what is expected or appropriate is stated. Coming out against the Prince of Peace with soldiers, with swords, with clubs, that's ironic. Jesus is the gentlest man who ever lived. And yet a huge force comes to arrest him, to take him away, as if he were some sort of dangerous criminal. That is irony. Jesus is the one man in the history of the world who never took anything that did not belong to him. Yet the chief priests and the temple police deprive him of his liberty another irony of injustice, as they would a robber. They could have arrested him any time they wanted, publicly in the temple. Instead, in cowardly secret, they come for him in the dead of night. And the, 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 the situation is ironic for a perfectly innocent man to be treated like a guilty criminal is the exact opposite of what we would expect or what we would consider to be appropriate. Here's another irony. Jesus could have destroyed all these men in a single instant, and none of their weapons would have given them the slightest protection. Their clubs and their swords were not only unnecessary, they were useless. You would think they would have known that. Not only the disciples had witnessed Jesus' miracles... The Jewish leaders knew about Jesus' miracles, and they believed that they were miraculous. They were unwilling to recognize that that power came from God, however. You would think they would have been a little bit more fearful 
coming against Jesus in this way. Nevertheless, it's the will of God that Jesus be betrayed and arrested and finally crucified. This was the hour, Jesus said, of the power of darkness. It was not previous to this. Jesus could have been arrested at any time, he says. I'm, here I am. I'm, I'm teaching publicly. I'm in the temple all the time. You could have just come and got me whenever you wanted to. But of course, you'll remember, we've seen over and over again throughout the Gospel of Luke, that they refused to do that. Why? Because they were afraid of the people. They were cowards. And so they come now, at night. And this Jesus says, was the hour of the power of darkness. When Jesus said, this is your hour, he was not referring to the 60 minutes on a clock, but to the short, definite period of time when evil men would have their way. This was the hour when Judas would give his treacherous kiss and the leaders of Israel would make their unlawful arrest. This was the hour when angry men would call for blood and cruel soldiers would carry out their terrible torture. This is the hour when the Son of Man would suffer unto death. In other words, this is the hour when Satan would triumph. The devil, of course, is the, the dark lord of spiritual evil, and therefore the hour of darkness is his hour. Scripture calls Satan's realm the domain of darkness. The imagery helps to explain why Judas and his angry mob came at midnight. They come under the cover of darkness, in part to hide their evil deeds. But of course, it's also a sign that they are working with the power of darkness. Luke has already told us that the devil himself has entered into the betrayer. Judas was in Satan's grip, and therefore what he did now is under the power of darkness. This is the hour of Satan's power. All the forces of the, his dark realm are arrayed that night against the Son of God. And for a time, it appears that they triumph. But there is encouragement here, even here. When Jesus says, this is your hour, he's placing a time limit on the power of darkness. This is your hour. But it will come to an end. Your hour is not going to last. It's only an hour. Although Satan seems to triumph here in Gethsemane and at Calvary and in the dark days when Jesus is buried in the grave, his victory turns to defeat on Easter Sunday. That's when the power of darkness ends. On the third day, Jesus rises from the dead, breaking the power of darkness, bringing the light of salvation to everyone who believes in him. The power of darkness has its time, but now that the resurrection power of God has come in Christ, we do not live in that time. The hour of darkness is over because Jesus is risen. There's further encouragement for us in this, however, that even the dark hour that seemed to be under Satan's power is really God's hour. 
Because Satan can do nothing unless God permits it. The very fact that Jesus told the forces of darkness which hour belonged to them demonstrates that every hour is his. Even the dark hour of betrayal is under the greater power of God and of his Christ. All of the things that seemed like victories for Satan, including Judas and his kiss, actually fulfill the prophecies and the purposes of God. Jesus allowed Satan to have this hour only because he knew it would lead to the accomplishment of his purposes and the accomplishment of our salvation by suffering this betrayal and everything else that happened to him on the way to his death, Jesus was paying the price for our sin. He was purchasing our salvation. And so the hour of Satan's power was at the same time the day of our redemption. And once again, the purposes and plans of the enemy are foiled. What comfort and courage this gives to us in every dark hour. It is true that our present trials will not last forever. They are temporary. They are but an hour. They are but a season. Soon we will enter into the eternal light of our salvation. But even in this present darkness, whatever that may be for us, It is under the power of God. Everything that we look upon as dark is under the control of the God of light. He is at work even when we are betrayed. There's a powerful example of this, and I'll leave you with this this morning. In the life and death of William Tyndale, famous Bible translator, Tyndale's burning passion was to put the Greek and Hebrew scriptures into the English language. And for this alleged crime, as the church at the time considered it, he was forced to flee from his native England and go into hiding in Europe. Many people know that eventually Tyndale was burned at the stake. What is somewhat less well known is that his capture came as a result of a painful personal betrayal. It was a man Tyndale had trusted in and confided in, a man he welcomed to his own dinner table, a man he invited into his secret study, a villainous man named Henry Phillips, who led him down a narrow passageway and into the arms of his enemies. Like Judas, Phillips was paid handsomely for his treacherous treachery. And like Judas, he used a prearranged signal to show which man he would betray. After his arrest, William Tyndale was taken to Vilvord Castle to await his execution. All of his possessions were confiscated, including the precious books that he was using to make his translation of the Word of God into English. And how did Tyndale respond? We get a clear answer in Tyndale's last surviving letter, written humbly to appeal to the local authorities for the return of some warm clothing. 
He says this, I beg your lordship by the Lord Jesus that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine which he has a warmer cap, for I suffer greatly from cold in the head. A warmer coat also, for this which I have is very thin. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt, if he will be good enough to send it. And I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in that study. These requests reveal how much Tyndale was suffering in the months just before he died. But his letter closes with this incredible affirmation of faith. I will be patient, he wrote, abiding the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ. When Tyndale is going through his darkest hour, suffering a betrayal that is leading to his death, he experienced in the midst of all of his suffering the peace and the comfort of Christ. And as a result of his patient suffering, as a result of his faithful witness, we are told the jailkeeper and the jailkeeper's daughter came to faith in Christ along with members of their household. Even the hour that seems to be under the power of darkness is God's hour. And by faith, we will see him use it for his glory. Praise God. Father, thank you for that assurance. Thank you for that encouragement. Cause us, Father, to press on, seeking to imitate Christ in the midst of our suffering, even the suffering of betrayal. And use our suffering. Father, use that dark hour for your good purposes, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.